Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hello, Fertility and Sterility listeners. Welcome back to another episode of FNS On Air. We are now in Season 3. This is the last episode for 2022. We're here in December. We have the whole team back together again. It is so good to see you today. Kurt, Pietro, Eve, great to be back with you guys for another episode of FNS On Air. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. And Micah, it is so great to have you back with us. Yeah, the band's back together. It's kind of cool. I miss this. <laughs> I missed it too. It's so good to, to be back together with everyone. So before we dive into the articles, I just want to really quickly give a teaser for two great things that we have this month. We have the Fertile Battles and the Inkalines. And these, along as the reviews and reviews, always take a, a lot of effort from our editorial editors. So I just want to give a shout out and a teaser first to the Fertile Battle from Dr. Santoro. This features Dr. DeCherney and Dr. Legro in a debate about the ever-changing alphabet soup of what REI means and should we be adding a G for genetics. I'll leave you with a quote. You can decide who you think said this at the end of theirs. The future of REI is in its past. Diagnosing and treating reproductive endocrine disorders with the full range of treatments and technologies, some of which may be genetic. Long live the reproductive endocrinologists. So you can guess whether that was DeCherney or Legro as you go and read those. And then the inklings this month comes from Dr. Cedars, who talks about putting the passion back in compassion. And the inklings is really a place for the editorial editors to talk about something that's important to them uh, that is timely with our field. And Dr. Cedars ends this with a very passionate plea saying, people, this is an amazing field. Let's not lose it and allow it to become only business. And for the clinical non-physician members of our team, remember why you chose the field when you could have chosen any other field. Getting to where we need to be should be a team effort. Let us all work together to restore empathy, caring, and passion. So I highly encourage you, we're not going to discuss these articles, but open the journal in December and read both the Fertile Battle and the Inklings. They are phenomenal. So Eve, we are going to start off with you with what is the seminal contribution for the month of December. This next paper is titled Pregnancy Outcomes Following Oral and Injectable Ovulation Induction in Infertile Women with Low AMH Compared to Normal AMH Levels. And this paper was done by Philip Romansky with senior author Steven Spandorfer. The objective of this study was to determine ongoing pregnancy rates among infertile patients with low AMH compared to normal AMH following oral and injectable ovulation induction and IUI cycles. This was a large retrospective cohort study that was done at Cornell, and they included patients who had completed one or more ovulation induction IUI cycles between 2015 and 2019. They grouped the cycles into anti-estrogen or oral medications, Clomid and Letrozole, versus injectable gonadotropins. And for the purposes of the podcast, I'm just going to call them medicated or injectable cycles. 
AMH was measured within 12 months of initiating treatment, and AMH was considered a binary variable, with the low group having an AMH less than one, and the normal group had an AMH of greater than one. More on this in a bit. All medicated cycles occurred within one year of the initial start date and were included up to the third completed cycle or until ongoing pregnancy. Patients were stratified into three distinct groups by age, under 35, 35 to 40, or over 40, and the relationship between low versus normal AMH was evaluated in each treatment category and in each group. And so here's what they found. They had more than 3,000 patients who completed over 5,500 oral OI cycles and over 1,000 completed 1,600 injectable cycles. For the medicated cycles, ongoing pregnancy rates were the same between patients with low and normal AMH in each of the three age groups. Ongoing pregnancy rates were about what you would expect at 15%, 10%, and 3% for the three age groups. And that's the cumulative ongoing pregnancy rate after up to three cycles. For injectable cycles, there were some notable differences. The low AMH group had lower ongoing pregnancy rates in both the under 35 and the 35 to 40 age group. In the under 35 group, the ongoing pregnancy rate was 12% compared to 23.5% ongoing pregnancy rate in the normal AMH group. So the medicated cycle rate in the under 35% was the same as the injectable cycle rate for the low AMH group, and it was the ongoing pregnancy rate in the normal AMH group that was higher. In the 35 to 40 age group, the low AMH group also had a 12.5% ongoing pregnancy rate compared to an 18.5% ongoing pregnancy rate in the normal AMH group. The over 40 ongoing pregnancy rate was dismally low in both groups, 3 and 4% in the low and normal AMH groups. On first read, I think the takeaway point and one that the authors make is that injectable gonadotropins are quite a reasonable treatment for patients under 40. They note that the pregnancy rates are higher than what you would expect and that this may be a viable option. However, what I found most concerning about these data, and not unsurprising, was the high rate of multiple pregnancies. For the medicated cycles, the twin rate was 13.1% in the low AMH group and 10.5% in the normal AMH group, so a little bit higher than what I normally quote patients. What I think is much more concerning, though, is in the injectable group, it was 23% in the normal ovarian reserve group compared to 13% in the low AMH group. Furthermore, the high-order multiple gestation rate, triplets and above, was 8% in the normal AMH group for injectables and 5% in the low AMH group. So I see it as the main take-home points are as follows. One, over 40 success rates with oral and injectable medications were low, irrespective of AMH. Two, low AMH and normal AMH patients had similar outcomes from medicated cycles. Three, patients with normal AMH had higher ongoing pregnancy rate than patients with low AMH due to recruitment of multiple follicles and a higher than anticipated ongoing pregnancy rate with what I would say is an unacceptably high twin rate of 23% and high order multiple rate of 8%. So in those patients who have a normal AMH, when you put them on injectable gonadotropins, you will get a higher pregnancy rate, but at the cost of what I think is an unacceptably high multiple pregnancy rate. And so I would actually take the opposite 
conclusion and say that injectable gonadotropins are probably not a reasonable option to pursue as a middle ground therapy in patients who have normal AMH levels. Micah, I know you published a paper on ovulation induction and the risks of multiples in the Green Journal. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this paper. Yeah, it's funny, Eve, because you know I, I went away from the main hypothesis of this paper and focused on the multiples as well, because that's just something I, you know, I'm passionate about. I know Petra is as well with outcomes uh, for, from these pregnancies. You know, in our paper, we found there, you know, there was a small benefit of adding gonadotropins, but it was at a massive increase in the risk of multiple gestation. Uh, like 20 or 30% higher risk of multiples uh, compared to if you just used uh, ovulation induction agents. So uh, we do not generally use gonadotropins in our clinics. And I would say when you break down in that meta-analysis we did uh, based upon cancellation criteria, the RCTs that are out there, if they have strict cancellation criteria, like the uh, European studies do, where they cancel if there's more than two follicles, there's no benefit to using gonadotropins. You're not helping live birth because you're only getting one to two follicles, which you can get with clomid or letrozole anyway, and you're not increasing twins, right? So a quick cancellation policy, low dose, you're not helping, you're not hurting. But if you do something like they did in um, Amigos and you allow very high doses to be used uh, compared to clomid and letrozole, and you don't have strict cancellation criteria, you can have very high multiple gestation rates, uh, just like you do in, in this paper. Uh, and Pietro, you guys referenced uh, minimizing twins or minimizing multiples fertility treatments committee opinion. We have a pretty good idea of what the historic rate of twins and triplets is in natural conceptions historically in the U.S. And because of SART, uh, which has done a great job of documenting this and the CDC, we have a really good idea of how much of that comes from ART. And so by deduction, we can kind of come to a conclusion of how much non-ART fertility treatments call, uh, are related to this. And it's somewhere around 20 time increased risk of twins and around a hundred time increased risk of high order multiples, which we know are, are pretty devastating, come from these non-ART treatments that we're doing. And so as a field, I think we do a great job because of SART and minimizing our triplets through IVF. I think all of us as clinicians, because this is coming from a really high quality clinic that has a really low ART twin rate, if you look at their SART data, but yet here we're seeing really high triplet and higher rate and really high twin rate. And so I think all of us need to, since there's no registry, need to look internally at our own programs and make sure that we're managing those cycles appropriately. Yeah. So I want to call on you, Pietro, because what I didn't mention is you are the second author in this study. And I would love to hear your comments on that. And then the other point that I want to bring up is just the idea of using AMH as a binary variable or as a, as a categorical yes, no. And I, I actually agree with that approach in this paper. And what I really love is that the authors took that one step further and they did a sensitivity analysis where they looked in more depth at each of those levels of AMH. They didn't just look at it as a black and white categorical variable. So can you comment on both of those points? I'll take the second point first, Eve, which is that we struggled with this internally quite a bit back and forth with myself, Philip, and, and Steve Spandorfer, where we all think intellectually that there probably is a difference in that less than one group. So we really wanted to explore it kind of in depth and make sure that we we answer that question, which you so um, rightfully pointed out. I'll speak a little bit to the finding of the high higher order multiples in the high multiple pregnancy rate here. 
we were also surprised internally when we actually took a step back and look at our own data that it was as high as it was. And I think a little bit of it is that we don't have a strict cutoff policy for if we're recruiting too many follicles that we follow from a clinic-wide perspective. But I think this definitely highlighted this as a QI, QA issue for us internally. But I think point number two, and something that this paper doesn't talk about, there's a decent number of patients who we start on gonadotropin cycles who have a overly robust response that we actually just convert to IVF. Um, and that's a population that we we don't include here in this study, but is a population that if had we uh, continued with a gonadotropin cycle, would have had an even higher um, pregnancy rate or even just cancellation and no attempt at pregnancy. So I think that's a third strategy that to keep in mind here when we're talking about how to reduce multiples is if you have an, a, a robust response, conversion to IVF when financially feasible and in line with what the patient wants and what we think will actually give them success is not an unreasonable approach to help maximize pregnancy rates but minimize multiples. And my only pushback on that, and people do argue that, is you're kind of then getting a suboptimal treatment for both treatment arms, right? You're getting suboptimal for ovulation induction because you can't do it. And you're getting suboptimal for IVF because you would have got more eggs with a different approach. So it is an option, but it should be like your parachute, the plane's on fire, we got to jump option. I, I don't think that should be like, this is our plan and as a general approach to using gonadotropins in the clinic. And that's exactly what it is for us. We use it when we're surprised and that we were cycling the patient for the very first time. If we notice that happens the first time, then we clearly have evidence from how that first cycle went to, to manage the second cycle better, be it more ovulation induction, more injectables, or just start with IVF the second time around. So I'm going to jump in with a kind of peripheral question here. We, we explored that idea of converting people to IVF and abandoned it a while ago because, again, it was suboptimal and the logistics conversion was was very difficult with the lab and schedules and insurance. But my question is, if you do have someone that's hyper, wrong word, if you have someone that is more aggressively simulating than you wanted and you choose to cancel the cycle, what do you guys do? Do you actually still trigger their ovulation? Do you actually just let them ride it out? Do you ask them to um, abstain? I'm just curious because this is something that's not in the textbooks. Yeah, I'll tell you internally what we would do is we would trigger so that we weren't left with a bunch of follicles and or cysts to complicate the next cycle, but we would ask the patients to abstain during that period that they were ovulating as many follicles as we were. And you get anybody with hyperstimulation? No, they would get Lupron triggered. We would wait till follicles were above 13, 14 millimeters in size and, and Lupron trigger them and ask them to abstain. Because one of the things I learned years ago as a fellow was that you needed to actually withdraw the granulosa cells to reduce hyperstimulation. And I think the more I think about it, that's a myth, which is why I brought this up, that I don't think you actually need to, to um, actively um, remove the granulosa cells to, to minimize the risk of hyperstimulation. I agree, Kurt. If that worked, then we wouldn't see OHSS after IVF because we're reducing the granulosa cell. But it's, you know, it's only the uh, cumulus granulosa. It's not the mural granulosa that attach to the follicle wall. Right. And those are the ones that, that drive it. Well, listen, if you cure it um, aggressively enough, you could probably get at them, but you're, I think you're, <laughs> to, Mike, to Micah's point, we shouldn't. Kurt, to your clinical question, I take it a step further and I, I'll add Antigon for a week. I'll trigger them as with uh, Lupron and then add Antigon and just shut it down. I, I just oh my God, Micah, Antigon, I don't think our listeners know what that is. That's the old term for Ganerolics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is that some kind of potion that you use, Micah? Yeah. Yes, <sighs> I learned it at Hogwarts. It works very well. Eve and Pietro, this is a great paper, but I wanted to hearken back to, are we just rehashing the same subjects of the, of the Amigos paper that was you know, conducted by the Reproductive Medicine Network when, what is it now, 10 or 15 years ago, where basically we said that higher order multiples 
outweigh the gain of a slightly higher pregnancy rate. Have we just forgotten that message? Well, I have not forgotten the message, and that's kind of where I brought this paper back to the message. But I think if you read the paper and you take it at face value, the conclusion of the paper really stated that injectable gonadotropins are a decent tool that you should have in your armamentarium. And I don't disagree with that, but I personally only use injectable gonadotropins with great caution in a carefully selected patient. And it's very rare that I will use an injectable gonadotropin for an IUI cycle. So I think that it needs to be, this paper needs to be with a softer conclusion. Um, But I agree. I I don't think it's a novel finding. And the big difference between Amigos is just, this is now a, this is not an unexplained fertility population. And this is a group of, with an AMH less than one. I think the mean AMH in the Amigos trial was 2.6, but it's nice to see that the the same finding is still true in a a different uh, subpopulation. Same physiology makes sense. I think on a positive note, I mean, you can really say that, you know, I think some of the good take-home points of the paper are that if you have a low AMH level, your likelihood of success with medicated OI, IUI cycles is not different than somebody that has a normal AMH. Like, I think that's a really positive finding. I think it's in line with Ann Steiner's data on time to pregnancy. And where I think that you really see that difference is not so much in low versus high AMH in a medicated cycle, but it's an injectable cycle. And I think intuitively it makes a lot of sense. You have a high AMH, you can recruit more follicles, you have a higher likelihood of pregnancy. And along with that, you have a higher likelihood of multiples. So I think that the difference between this and Amigos is really that it looked at that specific question of low AMH. And I think that that's what's really unique about this. And I I don't want to come across as negative. I actually think it's a wonderful study and it answers that very niche question. But I, I do think that that finer point needs to be highlighted much more robustly. Great point, Eve. So to put a cap on it, I think this is a great paper. It answers a question that had not specifically been addressed. And I think we found the answer that we would have expected to in these patients with low AMH. And again, just want to put in a plug, similar to what we do in IVF as a field, if you don't measure it, you can't track it and you don't know what your outcomes are. So I just want to encourage all of us out there to be measuring our twins and our high order multiples that come through our clinic as a result of things we do with IUI and ovulation, induction and ovarian stimulation in the clinic that we don't do the same as we do in IVF currently. All right. Thank you, Eve, for discussing the seminal contribution. Kurt, you're up next with original articles and assisted reproduction. What did you have this month? So, Micah, I wanted to say you left us a nice puzzle there. But if you recall a few years ago, Alan Deterney and I wrote an article saying, are are REI still gynecologists? So I think we've changed the G here. The G is for genetics instead of gynecology. I thought it was for gynecologic surgery, but who knows? (laughs) So the first article I'm going to present is titled Pregnancy Complications and Placental Histology in In Vitro Fertilization Pregnancies with Initial Low Serum HCGs. So the goal of this study basically is to link or to look for the potential link of an initial low ACG, which we would all think of as some sort of marker or surrogate marker of placentation to preterm delivery, but with the possible intermediary of placental pathology. So let's see if they got a good answer and whether we can believe this answer. So this is a retrospective cohort study, University of McGill. The first author is Dr. Garner Herman with a senior author, Michael DeHaan. 
It looks at patients from 2009 to 2017, so it's relatively contemporary. Uh, it's a little unique in that they started their cohort if the, the pregnancy had already reached 24 weeks, so therefore excluding our early losses. And it restricted the analysis to um, singletons born with in vitro fertilization. Basically, they said the exposure is a low HCG. They defined it as less than 150, which is 10th percentile in their group. And they looked at the outcome, basically placental pathology and perinatal outcomes such as preterm delivery. So the reason they could do the study at McGill was that all the placentas go to pathology, and therefore they were all evaluated, and they were evaluated using something called the Amsterdam Placental Workshop. So in brief, what they were able to do was assemble a cohort that about 100 patients, it's actually 103, that had started with a low HCG, compared it to um, a roughly 950 that had a, a quote-unquote normal HCG. Again, all conceived with IVF and were able to find out what happened with these children. Of note, they noted that for some reason, um, in the group that had a low HCG, it had a lower use of ICSI and a lower use of blastocyst transfer. That was controlled for the analysis, but I find that a little bit curious. And the main findings were that the preterm delivery rate was higher in those with a low HCG, and there were a number of placental pathology that were found as well. So I won't bore you with the statistics, but we'll talk a little bit about how you interpreted it in a second. But uh, basically, in a multivariate analysis that controlled for everything they were able to control for, the risk of preterm delivery was about twofold higher, and the risk of uh, silical, single umbilical cord was about ninefold higher, and then the risk of filamentous cord and some other pathologies were about twofold higher. So this seems intuitive. This seems like, wow, we found the missing link. But the authors are careful to point out, and I will be careful to point out too, that right now, we don't know if the link of placental pathology links to preterm delivery. Uh, it seems intuitive, but and the authors correctly say that abnormal placental pathology may be associated with perinatal morbidity, but not necessarily preterm delivery. So this is an interesting story. It's not a new story. There's lots of literature assessing the outcome of children after IVF, and it that agrees and doesn't disagree with some of the findings. Um, I hate to, you know, preach on my own hobby horse, but, you know, we have a study recently published that says if you look at um, women conceived without intervention, but conceived and, and found to have a really late implantation, meaning the sac is discovered very late, we didn't find any difference in morbidity or mortality. We also have looked at the slopes of HCGs and found out that a lower slope, again, supposedly placental growth, is associated with low birth weight, but not preterm delivery. So we have to be careful about confabulating some of these outcomes because they're not necessarily the same thing. Now, they did control for blastocyst transfer, and they did control for ICSI, and they acknowledged they didn't look for slopes, but these are all things that might have made their findings a little bit more precise. So what do you do with this? What do you find when you find a study like this that intuitively you agree with, but when you really look at it and pull back the, the levels of the onion, there's just some lack of specificity in what they're finding here. So we agree that women that conceive with IVF are probably at higher risk. We think it's got something to do with placentation, but unfortunately, this paper, although kind of feeding into our intuition that this association makes sense, doesn't really get into the specificity of why. It really doesn't make that link that we thought it might between placental pathology. So it certainly expands our knowledge and understanding. We certainly still agree, and I hate to hear it in my clinic and at meetings, that, that IVF affects placentation, but we really still don't know what the heck that means yet, I guess I should say. So again, this study expands our knowledge, expands the scientific literature. Congratulations on a well-done study methodologically and with a great patient population. But I still think this is just part of the story and doesn't end it. What do you guys think? 
Yeah, so I totally agree with you. I have a couple of comments. First, it would have been really nice if they separated out fresh IVF from frozen embryo transfer. And I would love to see this analysis done in a frozen embryo transfer cycle separately. I think that perhaps they're not the same phenomenon that are occurring with regard to early implantation and placentation. And I think that it would be a lot cleaner if you separated the data in that way. The second comment, um, I was curious to see that in the lower HCG group, there were five smokers, five of 100. And in the normal HCG group, there were um, 29 smokers or 3% smokers. And that difference wasn't statistically significant. But I do think that given the association of smoking with abnormal blood flow and placentation, it would have been really nice to see were those contributory to some of the adverse outcome group. And could that have accounted at least for some of the difference in each group with regard to preterm delivery or abnormal placentation? But I I agree. I feel like it confirms a hunch, but it didn't really explain the why. I'd love to hear what Pietro has to say. What I was missing from this study, and again, this is a great study. I think we should double down on what Kurt always says. The science is good science. We can we can poke holes until the end of time in, in, in the studies, but this is helpful research, is that I'd like to see what actually happens in non-ART pregnancies with low HCG compared to normal HCG levels and see if the same relationship holds true. Because if we're really trying to hone in on what's, what's kind of the causative factor here, we can blame IVF until the cows come home. But if it's also happening in non-ART conceived pregnancies, I think that's helpful. But my second point is look at table three when you have a chance. There's probably 30 or 40 different variables they looked at in terms of placental findings. To me, the reassuring part is that by and large, there is no difference. Really, the only things that stood out, and they looked at uh, chorioamnionitis, they look at villitis, true knots, hypercoiling of cords, accessory lobes. The only things that popped out were the maternal vasculopathy being different, the preterm birth being different, and the velamentous cord insertion and single umbilical artery. The other 30 plus things were, were no difference between the groups. So there's some reassuring data here, not just worrisome data. That was actually my biggest comment. If you combine tables two and three, you actually get 51 different outcomes that are compared and there's no controlling for multiple comparisons. So me and my clinical mind think, thinks, reads this paper and thinks, well, you know, it's probably overall reassuring, but, you know, Kurt, as you say, we should let the science wash over us. There's probably something here. Uh, but my, my question statistical in nature to you, Kurt, was uh, if, if you have a paper with 50 different outcomes, should they do a correction for multiple comparisons or should we just consider this exploratory? Because a lot of times uh, epidemiologists, and I haven't heard you say this, but we'll say maybe we shouldn't. Let's consider this paper purely uh, exploratory, which is really what their objective seems to be. Let's just look broadly at, his, uh, at placental abnormalities. So we're not really saying specifically this was our hypothesis for a specific finding. So we're not going to correct for multiple comparisons. What's your what's your take on that argument, Kurt? Yeah, it's an it's an ongoing debate. It's a it's a good debate. But let me see if I can summarize it quickly. So the 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 central limit, the central what is that called? The central limit theorem. I forgot what it's called. Um, the central limit theorem says that you're going to find things by accident, by statistical chance, but those are independent findings. So there's a big argument in statistics that if things are actually linked, they're not independent, and therefore you're not going to find them by chance. You're going to find them because they're actually linked together. So if you find A and B is associated with A, you're going to find A and B, and you therefore shouldn't correct your p-value. So uh, they didn't say it explicitly, but I think the argument here was that you know we expect placental abnormalities to be linked to each other. 
other. So they're not independent events. It's not like I studied placenta and cardiovascular and liver enzymes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can make an argument there. But you did the right thing, Micah. Look at the paper. You understand this concept. You look at the number of variables and the p-values and say, do I really believe this or not? I don't mean believe it like they're lying. I mean, believe it like, you know, is this a true finding or, or not a true finding? That was a great, very quick summary of that debate. And my last question, just clinically. So they basically say maybe we should consider increased monitoring for patients that are IVF with a low initial HCG. I know a lot of OBGYNs and MFMs already do increased monitoring for all IVF patients. Do you think we're going to miss these findings? Do they really need something above and beyond that extra 18-week echo and the additional monitoring that these patients already get? Yeah, that was the biggest criticism I had of this paper that I was definitely going to get to is that, listen, they did they wrote a great paper, but I think we sometimes overqual our own findings. And I disagree with the finding that these are high risk and need extra monitoring. That This does not give me enough evidence to say that we should change clinical care based on this one finding in one hospital with, with, with all the features we just mentioned. Yeah, I agree. And especially back to Pietro's point of we don't know what the natural history of low HCG is in a medically unassisted conception. And so I think to jump to that conclusion based on these data is premature. And I think our MFM group would kill me <laughs> if I started sending <laughs> all of these over. As would mine, Eve, as would mine. Great discussion. Wow, I've missed this. It's uh, This is good to, uh, to have these talks again. So Pietro, we have one more uh, article in the original ART articles something that's near and dear to my heart, single embryo transfer of a good quality blastocyst uh, or good quality embryo versus adding in a second poor quality embryo. We're not going to freeze it. Should we just transfer it anyway? What does the meta-analysis tell us? Well, Mike, Kurt, and Eve, I wanted to share a clinical scenario with you that I was faced this past month while I was preparing um, this article for today's podcast recording. I had a 40-something-year-old patient who had two remaining blastocysts, a 3BB and a 5AA embryo. And she had failed two prior single embryo blast transfers, all of which have been untested embryos. In consenting her for her embryo transfer, she asked me, does putting back a poor quality embryo in with a good quality embryo do anything either beneficial or potentially even harmful to her chances? Well, if we think about it, we know that embryos communicate with the endometrium in very important ways. They're constantly sending um, information to the endometrium. And we can imagine that sending mixed signals may harm the chances of both the good quality embryo and the poor quality embryo, right? But what about does a good quality embryo make up for a poor quality embryo in terms of signaling and increase the chances of implantation of both? Well, enter this review and meta-analysis by Xiao et al. entitled Transfer of Poor Quality Along with Good Quality Embryos in IVF ICSI-ET Clinical Outcomes. The authors reviewed studies where a good and poor quality embryo were transferred and compared to a single good quality embryo. They excluded PGT and egg donation cycles, and, but they included blast and cleavage stage transfers, both fresh and frozen. The main outcomes of interest were clinical pregnancy rate, live birth rate, multiple pregnancy rate, and multiple birth rate. In total, 17 studies, including over 17,000 single embryo transfers of good quality embryos and 6,500 good and poor quality transfers were included. In total, there were no significant difference in clinical pregnancy rate or live birth rate between transfers of good versus good with poor blasts, fresh or frozen, cleavage or blastocyst. There was, however, a higher chance of multiple pregnancies and multiple live birth rate in the good with poor group compared to the good embryo alone. 
This was true for both fresh and frozen blast and cleavage state transfers. So in summary, double embryo transfers with a good and a poor embryo do not increase pregnancy or live birth rate, but they do increase the multiple pregnancy and multiple birth rates, independent of the type of embryo, blast or cleavage, fresh or frozen. I think to me, this study reinforces a fundamental point. And I know Mike is a big single embryo transfer guy. For patients with multiple available embryos, single embryo transfer of a good quality embryo is always the preferred strategy. Single embryo transfer is king. One good embryo at a time. Bravo. I'll have to share that I was a little surprised by the clinical pregnancy rates being similar, as there is some really interesting data that looks at poor and good quality embryo interactions. We know that the presence of a poor quality embryo in a culture drop decreases the overall blastulation rate of all embryos within that same culture drop. But notably, like this study showed, it did not change pregnancy or implantation outcomes of those embryos. Additionally, endometrial stromal cells, which migrate during the decidualization process, are shown to be completely inhibited when a low-quality embryo is placed on them, but not when a high-quality embryo is placed on them. So I think there's some great biochemical data, there's some great lab-based data, but this is real-world transferring of good and poor embryos versus just transfer a single good. And in the end, let's let the data speak for itself. If you want to maximize clinical pregnancy rates and reduce your multiple rates, single embryo transfer is still king and is 100% the way to go. Of course, we'd be remiss if we did not acknowledge that there is some nuance here on a patient level. We have to take into account the psychosocial aspects of failed transfer. We have to take into account some of the finances associated with how patients are paying for these cycles. But at the end, it's important for us to counsel patients, putting back that poor quality embryo with the good quality embryo will not make this cycle more successful, but will increase your rate of multiples. Eve, Kurt, Micah. Pedro, I love your summary of that article. I think you're spot on on all the topics that you hit. And, and you said something, which is exactly what I thought. I was surprised that it didn't increase live birth, but did multiples. You would think it would increase both. Um, our own uh, retrospective cohort that, that we published on this exact same topic makes up about 30, 25 to 30% of the data in this systematic review. And when we adjust for confounders, we do see an increase in live birth by transferring that poor quality embryo. That makes sense. But we also see by far a much bigger increase again, like we've been discussing in the, in the risk of multiples. And I think that makes sense. If it's a good uh, endometrium and you're putting a good embryo in, it's probably going to implant. If it's going to implant, that bad embryo probably is going to have a shot because everything's optimized and that good embryo is showing you that. So uh, I, the reason I think that this specific meta-analysis did not find a difference in live birth gets down to the fact that this is all cohort data and this is a meta-analysis that doesn't do meta-regression and doesn't do an individual patient meta-analysis and doesn't adjust for confounders. So when we did our paper, you start thinking through this, well, these the two groups are going to be very different retrospectively. Like who's going to take that second embryo? They're going to be people with a history of poor prognosis, people that are older and, and can take two. Uh, and so you need to adjust for the history of failed cycles, their age, their clinical story. If you're not adjusting for that, you're not getting to the full answer behind the story. And the problem with the meta-analysis of cohort data is that the individual trials control for that. So, well, actually, in this case, some of them did, some of them didn't, if you, if you read the author's conclusion. But when you're doing a meta-analysis, all you can do is, or all of that they did, was take the raw numbers that the papers report and put those into their statistical software. And I'll just give a shout out to Jack Wilkinson, who's one of our methodologic editors and harps on this on Twitter. You can't do a, you should not do a meta-analysis of cohort data that controls and adjusts for confounders 
if you don't do that in your meta-analyses. In other words, just because it's a meta-analysis doesn't mean it's type one data, that we're already looking at type two data. Meta-analysis doesn't make it better. And in fact, in this case, maybe actually made it worse because they're not doing as good of a job as what the primary data did uh, in fully exploring the question. Yeah, and I think that in the meta-analysis, you do lose that nuanced of like, which are the embryos that are leading to twin gestations. And I also think that it, it may be time to throw embryo scoring out the window. <laughs> like, what does it really tell us? When we look at those data in our own lab, we see plenty of pregnancies from, quote, poor quality embryos. And so I think that it adds a level of stress to the patient counseling. I think that it's not prognostically significant time and time again. And I think that maybe it's time to revisit how we score embryos. I wouldn't take it that far personally, Eve. We've published good data that shows the scoring of both the ICM and the trophectoderm correlate fairly well with the outcomes and blast transfers. I think it informs your transfer order, and there's data that suggests it even informs your transfer order for PGTA euploid cycles. Now, like you say, that those numbers might be small. So to me, it's simply a transfer order number issue. If that stresses a patient out, then you can find a way of, you just say, well, we'll transfer the best ones first and work our way through the cohort. The best ones may not implant, the poor ones might, but this is the best we can do to help make you be most likely to walk away with a pregnancy from this first transfer. Yeah, I'm going to push back on that too, though. There was a large study that was presented at ESHRAE this year that looked at embryos that most labs probably wouldn't have frozen, my own lab included. And they took those embryos and they transferred them. And they had, I think it was 14 or 18% pregnancy rate from those embryos that would have been discarded based on scoring alone. And that's not an issue of not scoring though, right? That's an issue of inappropriately applying the score to discard the embryos. That doesn't mean you shouldn't score. That means you're applying. Yes. I, I think that Maybe it just needs to be more consistent and revisited and people ascribe too much predictive value to scoring. And I think that's really what I'm trying to say is that it's not always, if if scoring was really the best, then we wouldn't see a cumulative likelihood of success with ART transfers because you would have a decreasing likelihood of success over time if you're transferring the first one's best. That's intuitively what I think. Just how do you apply it to counseling patients appropriately and what do you use it for? If you're using it to discard embryos that have a chance of making pregnancy into a patient, an embryo that has a 10 to 20% chance, let's say zero to 20% chance. In some labs are saying, we're going to discard those. Maybe a patient that has 10 other high quality blasts, that's the right thing to do. Maybe a patient who only has a single embryo, that's not the right thing to do. So again, how do you and your lab apply these data uh, to how you counsel a patient to me is what the issue is. Yeah, but I think that that also makes a meta-analysis difficult, right? So if every lab has different criteria that they use, then how do you amalgamate those data for a meta-analysis? Like, can it really be done? And is it accurate if the scoring that we use in our lab is going to be different than the scoring that Pietro and you use in your lab? Yeah. So now that we just had a good fight, I'm going to agree with you, Eve. So as a as a novice meta-analysisist myself, I've, d- I've done about 20 of these, and I try to do one a year with each class that comes through. And having published on this, I, I wanted to do a meta-analysis on this topic. I always do that in every paper we publish because we review the data. Is there a meta-analysis that's, that's out there? And we looked at this primary data and said there's no way that we can uh, combine these retrospective cohorts and do a meta-analysis unless we get all the individual data with all the confounders 
and put it all into an individual patient. Uh, and we decided that was too much work. So I think a lot of people would do exactly what you say, V. Look at this data and say, yeah, this is appropriate for a systematic review. We should not statistically be synthesizing this data because it's nonsensical. The, the output doesn't really make much sense if the input doesn't make much sense. And on a really nerdy level, uh, we so what you're saying is that the data is heterogeneous and they used a fixed effect model for most of their analyses, which assumes right. that it's not heterogeneous. Them. And they yeah. use the they use the I squared test, which is purely a statistical test to tell you if the data is heterogeneous. But if clinically you know the data is heterogeneous, you've got to use a random effect score. And by its nature, a random effect score widens your confidence intervals and makes it less likely that you're going to find statistical significance. So I think uh, methodologically, on several reasons, uh, I would not have done this study. And if I did, I, I would have done it a little bit different. Not to beat this study up, but um, Pietro, it looks like you have a comment. You know, we're going to have this conversation in five years, and we're all going to be talking about computer vision giving us morphologic assessment of embryos and take out the human element. So I, I think the 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 days for morphologic grading of embryos by a human are probably numbered, and I, I welcome the opportunity for some standardization, some real high-volume data sets to actually sort out morphologically which embryos are better, be it on appearance, morphokinetic parameters, and start to throw in some of the interesting stuff like metabolomics, proteomics, um, and spent culture stuff. I think we're we're at the precipice of really being able to rank embryos for transfer non-invasively without humans being involved in a significant way. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's actually probably the best way of saying what I was trying to think and maybe didn't articulately say, but our current methodology of how we're ranking embryos and how we're scoring embryos, I think needs to be revamped. So thank you. Yeah, and it would be improved. 100% agree. But Eve, you and I gave the people what they want. They want debate, they want conflict. We are here for that. We're bringing the people what they want. All right. So we're moving on to epidemiology next. And Kurt, you have a paper uh, that looks at a variety of contributors and, a, and an outcome. So we're looking at maternal obesity and specifically frozen embryo transfer. And does this affect offspring or is it associated with, maybe is a better word, offspring adverse cardiometabolomic alterations. So Mike, I'm sensing a pattern here. It's Eve that assigns the articles. And I keep getting these uh, very high level, uh, complex studies that uh, are fun to talk about, but spoiler alert, are not going to change your care. So this particular paper out of China by first author Zhang and senior author Chen looks at the associations of maternal obesity, frozen embryos, and offspring adverse cardiometabolic alterations. This is a neat idea, but we have to be careful of what we're finding here. So we're trying to look at the long-term cardiometabolic health of offspring conceived by frozen embryo transfer, but modified by being conceived and born to women that are overweight or obese. So again, out of China, I'm amazed with the numbers I can come up with, but they were able to assemble a cohort of almost 2,800 offspring who underwent in vitro fertilization and were followed between 2014 and 2021. And they restricted this uh, cohort that now includes children that are between ages of four and 11. Essentially, what they do is they divide the cohort into two groups, um, those that have a normal BMI and, with, uh, and those that are, quote, unquote, obese or overweight. And then within each of those groups, they compare the children between that that received a frozen embryo transfer and a fresh embryo transfer. So a couple things to, to add to humor. This is going to be a little hard to generalize because overweight and obese in China is considered a BMI greater than 24. So I'll let you extrapolate that to your own clinic. 
what they do then is look at a number of outcomes, basically, of the children. They look at the, 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 the BMI of the children and a significant number of metabolic parameters, such as uh, lipoproteins, such as uh, blood pressure, and they compare the means of these populations. So let's look at the group of women that had a high BMI first. And the comparison in this group is whether you had a fresh embryo transfer or a frozen embryo transfer. And the findings were that if you were conceived with a frozen embryo transfer, you actually had a higher Z-score for BMI, for blood pressure, and a couple of uh, metabolic parameters that you can look in the paper to see how they came up with, which is a kind of a summary of a, a number of measures. However, if you looked at the normal weight women, the associations were either not as strong or not present. In fact, some of them were actually beneficial, like a, a lower LDL level in women with a frozen embryo transfer and, and conceived in women of normal weight. So what did I just say here? Basically, what they're trying to say is that we understand there may be some metabolic problems with children conceived with a frozen embryo transfer. We, we've known from previous literature they may be larger, and large for gestational age might lead to obesity, which might lead to metabolic consequences. But what this paper is saying differently is not that, is that it may be exacerbated or confounded if these children are actually conceived in a mother who is overweight and obese. So this goes into the idea that generations can affect the next generation. So a frozen embryo transfer might carry some risks, but if it, the frozen embryo transfer is in a mother that has risk factors, those combined risks may be transferred to the children. So really, that's what's interesting about this paper is that it expands and demonstrates further that one action alone may have consequences, but these multiple um, coordinated actions transgenerationally with that of ART might have more consequences than each alone. So that's the take-home message for this paper, that it expands on this hypothesis that it's not only consequences in birth that affect children, it could be consequences as early as implantation as an embryo transfer, but even back as far as the consequences of the health of the mother at the time she conceives. So in my mind, this is a fascinating hypothesis that deserves a lot more energy and, and study to find and understand. But now if I want to put my fine statistical hat on, I want to talk to you a little bit because the findings aren't perhaps as dramatic as I just made them. So what the findings are, are something called Z-scores. So what they do is they take the population Z-score of whatever this group is, children can see with a, a frozen embryo transfer and obese woman, and they compare it to norm for those children not conceived in that way. So for those that don't remember your boards, Z-score is a numerical measurement that describes the values relationship to the mean of another group. In other words, how does this group differ from that group? In this case, the Z-scores were about 0.16. So if the Z-score is zero, you're right on the mean. So what this paper is showing, very small differences in the population a change of 0.1 or 0.2 away from the mean. Now, it's statistically significant. They're saying that clearly the blood pressure or the BMI is higher in this group than that group. So there's something there, but this has got nothing to do with individual patients um, and how often it happens. It's just basically saying on a population, we're noticing a difference and therefore you should take note of that. I have to mention some work by Carmen Sapienza and Christos Kutiferis here at my institution, and they don't think the issues with epigenetic changes that may be conferred by IVF are mean changes. They think that's actually in individual patients with some epigenetic phenomenon, and these are outliers. In other words, it's not the whole mean changes. The majority of children are actually healthy and the same, but there's a subgroup of children that have dramatic changes that brings the whole mean up. That's why we're not seeing all children with IVF having problems, we're only seeing some. 
So this doesn't take into that account, this population account. It's just basically saying that these populations seem different and therefore we should pay attention to this transgenerational aspect of health. And that's the point I want you guys to take away. Kurt, just looking at the tables, just a quick statistical thing that I think points out exactly what you're saying. They report almost everything as mean and standard deviation where these, based upon what you said, should much more better be described as, uh, you know, median and IQR or range would be even better. And when you look here, sometimes you have a standard deviation that's like 50 times higher than the mean or 40 times higher than the mean. It's like 0.04 on a score and then a standard deviation of 0.96, which is way, way higher. So that right there tells you you've got really big outliers, uh, exactly what you're saying that's maybe driving some of that finding. Right. And this is a big debate in the field, by the way. Do you actually look at the outliers or do you actually look at the mean? They did what's more accepted, which is the mean is slightly different. But many have argued that you should be looking at the frequency of the outliers as a more sensitive measure than just a, a modest change in the mean, which is affected, like, like you said, by the normal ones and the abnormal ones. Kurt, what do you think of their taking a continuous variable like obesity and making it categorical, like taking BMI and making it a categorical variable? So I think in some situations, it may be more acceptable, like in the earlier paper that we discussed about AMH, but I'm not sure I love that approach for this paper, because I do think when you talk about outliers that the class three and class four obesity patients may be markedly different than a class two obesity patient. And so I think that by using obesity as a categorical or a binary variable, that you're missing some of those finer points that you might see at those outliers. Again, this is a common statistical question. Do I look at my extremes, like the normal weights versus only the really obese, you know, high class category and look for differences there? And then everyone yells at you, you forgot the people in the middle. Other people then say, no, you should just take a cutoff and, and just look to see if there's a big difference and we can solve the the intricacies of how big the, the incremental difference is with, with more obese, and then people yell at you that you didn't have the specificity. So it's it's one of these things that you just make a decision, defend it in your paper, describe the limitations of the other approach, and then, in my opinion, it's it's good science. Is there a downside to sort of putting all the approaches in your paper? Uh, Eric Widra likes to say, I take my hypothesis and I, I beat it to a bloody pulp, and if it survives, then you know we, we move on from there. Uh, why not take it as a continuous variable and as this one dichotomous and as these uh, four group dichotomous and sort of look at all the things and see if we get consistent findings sort of throughout this that might help us interrogate that deeper down? Is there anything wrong with taking that approach statistically and doing all those? No, that's fabulous. I wish all papers did that. Um, in fact, the number one criticism I get when we review a paper, when someone says, can you do it in a second way, is they don't want to. I don't know if they don't want to because they know the answer <laughs> or they don't want to because they just don't have the, the resources to do it. But I agree when there's a controversy and ways to do it, you should do it both ways. And then you can discuss both answers, not just one. Yeah. And we're not p-hacking when we do research. We're not searching for that one p-value that's less than 0.05. We're really trying to interrogate that hypothesis and get down to what we think is not a true answer, as we keep saying true today, but uh, what, what we think is the underlying answer to explain these things. Yeah, Micah, you're right. That's the number one criticism we get in papers that we review. And it makes a difference between a good paper and a mediocre paper. Ones that really have looked at the multiple ways of doing it and said, look, that we all get to the same answer. That's a great paper. Ones that say we did it this way and take the finding or leave it is often not the most robust paper. 
And Kurt, I know we need to move on quickly to our next paper, but this year you instituted something that I think is incredible for the journal. You instituted a methodologic review for uh, every paper that uh, ends up being accepted and published in FNS. Can you very quickly just kind of summarize why you made that change and and what you're seeing uh, with that at this point? Yeah, thanks, Mike. I'd be happy to. So FNS is a great journal because it spans good science, but with really focused clinical material. And the biggest criticism, I guess, over the last decade or more has been that FNS sometimes takes papers that clinically are relevant, but are perhaps not always the most robust. So I've noticed in the reviews that sometimes Pure clinicians will say, oh, this is a great idea, except the paper. But then when you give it to someone that looked at the statistics, they say, well, you didn't really quite do it right. So I've tried to have um, kind of go right down the middle. And we've instituted that every paper that's near publication is going to be reviewed by a methodological editor. And these methodologic editors focus on the methods, the statistics, the tables, the presentation of the data, and are less interested in the topic because that's already been reviewed by, by the REIs. So it really improves the quality of the paper because my mantra has been, there are a lot of hypotheses, there are, there are a lot of experiments to do, but there's one way to present the science. And we want this to be done well in fertility and sterility, and that's why we've instituted this methodologic editor. It hasn't increased the time to review, as far as I can tell, but in my opinion is it's really improved the quality of the papers. Great. I completely agree with you, Kurt. Outside of promoting me to media editor, I think it's the smartest decision you've made as the uh, editor-in-chief so far for fertility and sterility. No, I, I really think it's awesome, so thank you for doing that. So a fabulous discussion. Uh, we're moving on to the genetic section of the journal. And Eve, you have a paper looking at pathways for potentially mTOR and POI. Yes. So this paper is called Pathogenic Variants in TSC2 Might Cause Premature Ovarian Insufficiency Through Activated mTOR-Induced Hyperactivation of Primordial Follicles. That's a chunky title. And the first author is Bingying Zhu and others from Shandong, China. The objective of this study was to investigate the role of the tuberous sclerosis genes, so TSC1 and TSC2, in the role of ovarian failure. As a review for our listeners, primordial follicle activation is when the dormant follicles are selected into growing follicles, which then leads to selection of the dominant follicle and atresia of the other cohort of oocytes in that pool. It has been hypothesized that some forms of primary ovarian insufficiency are due to inappropriately enhanced follicle activation, which then leads to inappropriate loss. Follicle activation has been linked to crucial signaling pathways such as P10 and including mTOR. TSC inhibits the mTOR pathway. In mouse models, TSC knockouts have hyperactivation of mTOR and follicle depletion, but there have not yet been good human data on this topic. So what the authors did is they used a whole exome sequencing database from a Chinese cohort comprising a little over 1,000 females affected with POI, and they identified five patients from this cohort with heterozygous missense variants in TSC2. What I really liked about this study was it was both a genetic and a functional study. So first they identified the mutation, and then they took that aberrant mutation and they studied the function in the laboratory by using techniques such as Western blot, ovarian tissue culture, among other methods. And what these functional studies showed was that the variants activated mTOR, inducing premature activation and subsequent exhaustion and burnout of the follicles. 
These data add to a growing body of literature targeting mTOR for therapeutics involved in ovarian failure. I'm going to give a shout out to one of my colleagues, Kara Goldman at Northwestern, who's doing a ton of work in this area. And she has shown in a mouse model with chemotherapy-induced POI that co-treatment with mTOR inhibitors may be beneficial for the protection of ovarian reserve. So I would say overall, I think this is an excellent and highly relevant translational research paper. To me, it feels like the puzzle pieces of this are starting to be put together for something that has long eluded us in the field of REI. And I think these types of papers, along with others, will likely guide future targets for prevention of premature follicle loss with chemotherapy. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say even potentially age-related loss. So I want to commend the authors on a really elegantly done study. And I think, Kurt, to your point about taking papers that have a clinical bend, this paper got me really excited. It was a phenomenal clinical question that I think was really demonstrated quite elegantly by some of the basic science methodology. The mTOR story, I think, is super interesting. I'm very curious to see how it plays out because they're actually looking at it even just benign GYN diseases. Um, and, and women with endometriosis, mTOR signaling is aberrant, and that's potentially explaining why they burn through follicles a little bit more or damage their ovarian reserve. It's also associated with PCOS and uterine fibroids. There's a host of GYN conditions where mTOR appears to be central. So I think this line of investigation is likely to help us in some of these other conditions. And I think double shout out to Carol Goldman in, at Northwestern, who's doing kind of the bulk of this research and really pushing this line of inquiry forward. Yeah, triple shout out. I mean, she only gets the uh, like ASRM top research prize every other year. So Kara, step up your game and start winning it every year for us, will you? Kara's amazing. Yeah, this is this is a fascinating topic. The idea that we can fundamentally change the way follicles are growing or not growing is is game changing. I'm, we're not there today, but th this is potentially transformative stuff. Excellent. And so next, we are moving on from genetics into reproductive surgery. Pietro, I know this is something near and dear to your heart, having trained at Cornell, a uh, sort of high volume surgical program. And I think you are now director of reproductive surgery at Boston IVF. So tell us about your paper. That's a cool title, isn't it? Very happy to be keeping the G in RGI. We're going to rename the specialty alive reproduction, gynecologic surgery and infertility. But this paper, I want to talk to you a little bit about endometriomas and call them what you want. Chocolate cyst, ovarian endometriosis. We all see these in our populations of infertile women, and we all know that they're problematic. And there's kind of a lot of questions about what's the best way to manage them. There are two mainstays of surgical management of endometriomas, ablation and cystectomy. There's also other stuff that's been described that we will not be focusing on, sclerotherapy um, and kind of other interventional procedures, but the two mainstays are ablation and cystectomy. And to get our definitions right, ablation requires either electric surgical or laser energy to vaporize or coagulate the cyst wall, whereas the cystectomy refers to actually excising the cyst wall, ideally in its entirety, but often um, stripping partially. Cystectomy, we know, outperforms ablation with regard to recurrence, pain control, and even post-op spontaneous pregnancy among a subfertile group of women. However, both do poorly with regard to damaging the underlying ovarian reserve. But the body of literature comparing both have not been compared head-on. Enter this wonderful systematic review and meta-analysis from Ying et al., also out of China. They reviewed studies that reported either an antral follicle count or an AMH before and after cystectomy or ablation that was performed either laparoscopically or via open surgery. 
In total, there were four RCTs and two prospective cohorts that were included. So what did they find? After surgery, antral follicle count values were significantly lower in both groups, but more so in cystectomy than ablation, with a mean difference of negative 1.33. Interestingly, AMH was lower post-surgery, but not significantly different between both groups. Now, what does this review tell us that is new? Well, to me, confirm what we suspected. Stripping CISWAL from normal cortex results in normal cortex and ovarian reserve being impacted. It does highlight to me that AFC, but not AMH, seem to be more sensitive to these post-surgical changes. I think at this point, we should all acknowledge the subjectivity of the antral follicle count measurement, particularly without any blinding. AMH may be, I think, a more honest marker as it's not so operator dependent. But ultimately, I think if I were reading a paper, I'd want to see both being reported to help kind of contextualize this for myself and for my patients. I think a second important point this review article raised for me is that we need more data on this. Four RCTs and two prospective studies evaluating ovarian reserve for a condition that affects up to 44% of women with endometriosis, a condition that at least one in 10 women suffer from globally. Come on, guys, we need some more data. I think we can all acknowledge that just having an endometrioma we know is destructive and damaging to ovarian reserve. And there's a beautiful study in FNS from some folks in Japan that looked at this. And I just want to highlight the study because it's one of my favorite. It's just so elegant. And what they did is they looked at the ovarian cortices of women with a unilateral endometrioma and the contralateral normal ovary. And they biopsied both. The side with the endometrioma had evidence of inflammation, scarring, and then that same pattern of burning through follicles that Eve just discussed. And you didn't see any of that in the contralateral side in the same pelvis, which is really cool. And finally, I do want to highlight that there are some evidence-based ways to make ovarian surgery safer. So many surgeons stick to using bipolar electrosurgical instruments, and we all know that bipolar instruments have significant thermal spread. There's a host of new energy devices that are out there that are actively being studied and used, such as plasma energy, CO2 laser vaporization, which have all been well described for the management of endometrioma cyst walls with limited thermal spread, but similar destructive properties to the actual endometriosis. There's also wonderful hydrodissection techniques. Great video published in FNS, you can find this on YouTube, that highlights how you can use a laparoscopic needle to hydrodissect the space between an endometrioma and the ovarian cortex to minimize trauma to the ovarian cortex and facilitate dissection. Ultimately, we all know that there's more data is needed, but in the interim, I think we need to counsel our patients with endometriomas that surgery, while it may improve pain, and in some people it may enhance fertility, particularly in subfertile women, it's not benign, and our surgical technique probably matters a lot. Pietro, you do a lot of surgery. Is this going to change what you do? Or are you already doing this? What's your preferred technique? I really like the hydrodissection technique. I want to give a plug to this video because I think it actually opened my eyes to how we can make surgery a little safer. And just to comment on how they do it, it's a laparoscopic needle that you place through a port, just like you're injecting vasopressin for a myomectomy. But after you've drained the endometrioma, you really try to get that needle in between the plane between cis wall and cortex. And you put about 100 to 200 cc's of saline in that space and it creates this beautiful cleavage plane so that once you actually start tackling the peeling the cyst off the cortex, it's already been hydrodissected for you. So I use this for small endometriomas. I use this for big endometriomas. I think, and I'm going to th- go out on a limb here and be controversial, I think endometriomas even smaller than four centimeters in size deserve being surgically managed. I'm going to say it and I'm going to be provocative about it because we know that endometriomas are destructive. They're this big inflammatory volcano in an ovary 
And if we can help try to reduce that inflammation sooner, I think without any data to support this caveat asterisk underscore that I think we're probably going to help these ovaries in the long term. But I think the way in which we tackle those small endometriomas, which are surgically challenging, is really tough. And we don't know what the best way to tackle Pietro, it. you're diving right in. Here. <laughs> yeah. So I am going to push back big time on that, Pietro. I think especially with the four centimeter endometriomas or lower, like there are no data on that. And I think that I would argue that it's the endometriosis itself that's destructive. And by going in and operating and doing surgery on those, you may be causing more harm than good. Even the best of the best surgeons, I've still seen market ovarian failure. There's multiple studies that show reductions in ovarian reserve after surgery. And I just think that that's a, it's a dangerous precedent to set to go in and try and operate on every endometrioma. I think that perhaps medical therapies for endometriosis when started early on may possibly show some benefit down the road in preservation of ovarian reserve, but I really try not to operate on these patients unless there are indications like pain. If they're doing IVF, if they've had a prior infected endometrioma or difficulty accessing the ovaries, that may become an indication for some of the larger endometriomas. But I am just not convinced at this point that endometriomas need to be removed, um, particularly from an ovarian reserve standpoint. I think the opposite is probably true. Pietro, you, you've dove into an argument that's gone on for as long as I can know medical literature. Surgeons want to fix things, um, and they're pretty confident in what they do actually fixes the problem, but sometimes the scope is bigger than the immediate surgical success, uh, and clearly there's a threshold between balancing the pros and cons. I don't know what it is, but I, I think there are some cases you should leave alone, um, and you know, obviously when it crosses a threshold, surgery makes a lot of sense. I don't think we're going to be able to solve that now, but just we have to be careful with our hypothesis, even though it's meant for the, for the greater good. I would say that I think the limitation here is just an instrumentation issue. I think once we have safer electrosurgical tools with limited thermal spread, we can take care of cis walls that are inflammatory and problematic and minimize trauma to ovarian reserve. So I'm going to go on the record and say that we should all be on the lookout for better technique and better instruments, and we're likely to get better results from operating on ovarian endometriomas. Except you still have to operate on them, which includes incisions and general anesthesia and iatrogenic problems. So moderation. It's a great debate, Pietro. We should probably do something like this between FNS and AAGL and talk about stuff like this. Do we have anything like that coming up? Well, it just so happens, if you're interested in the topic of endometriosis, we're going to be live from the AAGL annual meeting in Denver, Colorado this coming month. And we're going to be debating and discussing endometriosis, particularly endometriosis classification and how we can best organize our, our vocabulary when we're talking about endometriosis from a clinical perspective, but also from a research perspective. And Pietro, just to tease future content coming from FNS on air and other platforms for FNS, I missed the ASRM meeting. I know even people that made it, you can't catch everything. So what did we do when we were there from fertility and sterility? And what can we look forward to coming soon from the journal? I would say we had the most exciting session at the ASRM annual meeting in Anaheim. Even myself um, moderated a debate looking at PGTP for polygenic risk scoring. Is it cutting edge or should we cut it out? We had a pro to con side, um, people who felt very passionately um, about this topic and not necessarily are advocating or arguing uh, for or against an issue that they personally felt was right or wrong. But we covered a lot of ground. We talked about the ethics. We talked about clinical indications, the future, 
And there were really wonderful and thoughtful questions from the audience. The video and the audio is going to be available both in podcast form and later on our website. So if you missed it, I highly encourage you to check it out if you're just trying to get some understanding of what PGTP is, because your patient's going to start asking about it if they haven't already. So we highlighted the six articles we wanted to talk about in the journal this month, but obviously the journal has a bunch of other quality stuff. I encourage you to pick up the December edition of FNS, read it over the uh, holidays, just to highlight a couple newer sections of the article. We have research letters, which are smaller papers uh, focused on just one specific question or one specific small area of data, not worthy for a full paper, but certainly important to get published and out there. Uh, we also have letters to the editor. They have migrated back from the uh, fertility and sterility dialogue back into the print journal itself. So I always like picking those up and reading those. Eve, Kurt, Pietro, it's so good to uh, be back and see you all again. I've really missed this, my friends. I miss seeing you at ASRM and thank you to all of our listeners. I hope you have wonderful holidays this December. I'd like to say we're the lucky ones to have you back, but it's really the listeners, Micah. We've missed you, my friend. It's so good to see you. You all are too kind. Have a happy holidays, everyone. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. Brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.